0: So if you remember, we're going through a series uh, this year, really this whole year, uh, called The Words and Red, where we're looking at the different sermons of Jesus. And we're now in a place where we're looking at what's called the Olivet Discourse. If you remember, way back in the beginning of, of Matthew 24, Jesus leaves the temple. You remember this? He's kind of departing not to return. His disciples are a bit... Uh, miffed by this and wondering what's going on. And so they try to point him back to the temple. Look, it's so beautiful, Lord. And he says, look, this temple is going to be torn apart. And they're so dumbfounded by this, they don't say anything for about 30 minutes as they walk away from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives, where then they finally say to Jesus, when's this stuff going to happen? And so the whole discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus kind of answering the question, when are the things going to happen? When, is, when are you going to come as the king? When are you going to set up your kingdom? And so these, this discourse has to do with that. And we talked about last week, uh, we, we, we mentioned the reality that, that most of the parables that Jesus tells in these two chapters really have one basic explanation, or one basic, I should say, application. They are, Be ready. Be ready. Be prepared. God wants us to be prepared. Jesus wants us to be prepared for the kingdom. We can say uh, with clarity, with truth, Jesus is preparing us to be in the kingdom. We talked last week about the work of the Holy Spirit, and that work begins long before we're saved, where the Holy Spirit begins to draw us to Christ, show us our need for a Savior, show us our need for, for His death, resurrection, His life. And then begins to to reveal to us how worthy Jesus is and how we should trust Him. We should call upon Him. And so even if you're here today, just as a visitor, even if you're here today, just kind of checking this Jesus stuff out, we believe with all of our hearts that God the Holy Spirit is working on you. He is wanting to draw you to Jesus. He's wanting to prepare you to be a full-fledged member of His kingdom. And so these... Words, these parables, these teachings that Jesus gives are all about that. They're all about preparing us. Now, this uh, particular parable, the parable of the talents, uh, is one that gets a lot of people confused, and and part of it comes from just that idea of a talent. When we heard that, we hear that word talent in English, we think of an ability. Now, we have to understand what a talent was. A talent in the, in the biblical sense was, in the Old Testament, it was a weight, a measure of weight, how much something weighed. In the New Testament, it was then, by that time, that, that measurement had to do with an amount of money, specifically a, a large amount of money, depending if it was a talent, a weight of gold or a weight of silver. It had a certain value to it. And so when Jesus is talking about talents here, they're not thinking abilities, they're thinking Money, But we're going to see in the parable that this has application to more than just how we use our money. It has to do with with how we use all opportunities that are given to us. Everything. It has to do with this word called stewardship. Now stewardship is this idea that... um, that we are responsible for somebody else's goods. So that stuff belongs to somebody else, but we have a responsibility to use that in a certain way. That's stewardship. And in a very real sense, all of life is a stewardship. All that we have, the fact that we are alive, is a stewardship. That God sovereignly puts us where He wants us to be As a stewardship, he says, okay, this is what I have for you. This is the place that I have for you, and it's for a specific reason. And Paul talked about this when he's preaching to the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Listen, Paul says to them, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Listen, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And this is why, listen, God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. In other words, listen, God says, you were born in the country you're born in. You, were, you are meant to live in Norwich right now for a reason. And that reason is this, you could know God. That's what he does. And you have a stewardship You have, he's given you something that doesn't belong to you, a responsibility to do something with that life. And so when we're reading through this and we think talents, don't think just money, think whole life. Think the stewardship of your entire life. Now again, the English word talent, the reason it became to be used in the idea of ability because it is because this applies to all life. It was applying this kind of Biblical truth that they said, okay, your talent, you, what you possess is the idea. So we want to talk about this today. We want to see how, how is God preparing us? How is the Lord Jesus preparing us for his kingdom through faithful stewardship? What does that look like? So here's the first thing. We're going to see that God gives us, listen, God gives us opportunities as individuals. Look at verse 14 again. He says clearly, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a man... Who travels to a far country, what does he do? He calls his servants and he delivers what? His goods to them. And he does so, notice in verse 15, to each one according to his own ability. So two really important things, right? First is, in this parable, the master is not giving them something that belongs to them. He's giving them something that belongs to himself. The master says, this is mine. I'm giving you this responsibility. This is what he says. Now, here's what the Scripture says plainly. You can't get plainer than this. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, right away, there's something in us that wants to push back from that. We don't like the idea of somebody else owning us. And understandably so. We, we, the idea of a human owning a human is reprehensible, and it should be. Slavery is always abomination. It should be. But we don't like this idea, though, of, of somebody else calling the shots, of being belonging to somebody else. But this is what the Scripture does. The Scripture says, listen, the earth, everything that you can think of, is the Lord's and all the fullness, this world and everybody, including you, who dwells in it. We belong to him. Our lives are already his. We, we talk sometimes, we use language as Christians, like, okay, I gave my life to Jesus in, you know, whatever time it was. October 4th, 1987, that was me. Most of you weren't born then, but that's when I <laughs> became a Christian. So, so that's, that's what we do. We think, okay, that's, that's we gave our lives to Jesus. No, 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 no. We realize that Jesus gave us life at that time. I realize that, that my life belonged to him at that time. He's the one who's given all life. The Bible's really clear in the book of James that every good gift, every perfect gift, comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no shadow of turning, the one who doesn't change. So the Bible doesn't try to convince you of that reality. It just assumes it's the case. It simply assumes that everything that is comes from God the Creator belongs to God, the creator, and is given to us as stewardship. Everything. Now, there's something else here, though, too. The fact that it all comes from God means none of us have any bragging rights. If you have more money than somebody else, it's not because you deserved it. I'm not saying you didn't work for that, but it's not because you deserve it. It's because God's graced you with that. If you have more talent or ability in somebody else, not because you deserve it, because God's graced you with that. If you're better looking than somebody else, it's still stewardship. The reality is this: because it's grace, it's by God's grace, it's God's given us this grace of life. We need to think soberly. This is what the Bible says in the book of Romans. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. But rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And so it's important to recognize that, you know, when we're talking about opportunities, we're talking about our life, we're talking about the appointed times and boundaries. That God gives those things to us as is best suited for us as individuals to know Him. I I personally find great freedom in this (laughs) because I was tempted growing up to be really bitter about my upbringing. Now, this is going to sound horrible because I grew up in America and everybody's rich and happy in America. We all know that. (laughs) But I was poor by American standards. We were actually homeless for about four weeks, it was horrible. My dad was a very, very nice man but he was an alcoholic. My mom bailed when I was six years old. I could continue to kind of play the violin and sing my sob story to you and probably emote some pity. But you know what I came to realize, especially really really early on in my, in my Christian experience, really early on in knowing Jesus, that that was exactly what I needed to come to know Jesus. He pre-appointed that. He gave me that opportunity. Now, some of you grew up in Christian homes. Here it comes. And you're thinking, yeah, all right, he's going to tell me how lucky I am to have Christian parents. Well, maybe, maybe not. Depends on your parents. But here's what I am going to tell you. God says this is where you're supposed to be. These are the times and the appointments that I've set aside so that you can know me. God wants to show you something about himself. Our whole life is like this. This is, this is what Jesus is, is wanting to get across to us. Do you understand that you've been given something that doesn't belong to you? Your life. What are you going to do with that opportunity? Now, and this is the thing that we have to think about. Because the truth is, we choose how we're going to respond to those opportunities. In this parable, he he talks about three servants. And it says, one, he says uh, that he had received, the one who received five talents, what does he do? He goes and he trades, and he makes five more. The one who receives two talents, he, he trades, he makes two more. And the word there for trade literally just means to toil with. In other words, they worked hard with what the, the, the things that they had, the opportunities they were given. Now, here's what we tend to do. We tend to politicize these kinds of things and say, but it's not fair, that guy had five talents. Of course he has five talents more. He had five talents to begin with. That's not how, how Jesus deals with this. He just says, look, the guy had five talents. He did something good with that five talents. He got five talents more. The guy had two. He did something good. He, he, he got two more. And, and what did they do that was so good? They worked. They were diligent. Now, I'm not just talking about employment right now, so don't get confused by that. I'm talking about the reality that they were diligent with what they had. They did something with what they had. <coughs> and this is important. It's important because when we talk about having a successful life, what does that mean to you? When you think about what is it, what will it look like to be successful? We have all kinds of different pictures. (coughs) But here's the reality. Whatever that picture is, success always requires diligence. Did you know that? Success always requires diligence. I don't know if you guys, any of you are in the habit of reading the book of Proverbs. It's really great, 31 chapters. You can read a chapter a day. Most months you'll get through it or many months you'll get through it. It's a great habit to get into. If you read the book of Proverbs, you already see loads and loads on this issue of laziness or diligence. I'll just give you one example. Proverbs thirteen four: The soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Now, again, let's not just think money. Don't just think that. Just think about success. What is it that you really think you want to do? Do you really think you're going to get there without working hard? I just want to be a good parent. Well, guess what? Parenting takes hard work. I just want to be a good student. Well, that takes hard work. Good employee. Good child. Good neighbor. So why would we think it's any different when it comes to being a good Jesus follower? (laughs) It takes work. This is important because Jesus wants us to understand that, that there's no room for laziness in the Christian life. Now we are all fall short. All of us have been tempted with laziness and succumb to laziness. But it's something we need to repent of. Interesting, the, the, the person who gets one talent. what does it say he does? He digs a hole in the ground and he hides the money there. Success always requires diligence. But you know what? Failure often requires nothing. To fail, you can just do nothing. We don't always think that way, do we? How's your, how are you doing with your walk? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You read your Bible once? No, it's been a long time. Pray? Not really. Oh, but you're doing all right. How's your marriage? Yeah, we're doing good. No problem. You wife and I, do you spend much time together? No, not really. Ever pray? Oh, a little bit. Oh, but you're not right. We act as if, listen, we act as if, if we don't do bad, we win. You know what that's like? It's like beginning the London Marathon and thinking, as long as I don't fall over, I'll win. And so when they say, go, you just stand still. <laughs> I'll win because I'm not going to trip. You're not going to trip because you're not going to run. If you don't run, you don't win. Success always requires diligence. Failure often doesn't require anything. This servant, or this, in this parable, he, he didn't do much of anything. Now, some of you are thinking, oh no, oh no, has John forgotten about grace? No, I haven't. Listen to this The Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, it's the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Listen, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things He planned for us long ago. Did you you hear that? So that we can do good things. God has good things that He wants you to do. Those good things prepare you and others for His kingdom. Those good things allow you and others to experience His kingdom. This isn't about, okay, you got to work for your salvation, baby. We never needed the Reformation. We're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year, October 31st. Good stuff. Oh, but do we really need it? Because the truth is, as long as we can pay our indulgences and do our good deeds, we'll be okay. No, we need to know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is the gospel, always has been, always will be. But here's a reality. God doesn't save you so you can go, cool, ticket to heaven. See ya whenever, Lord. He saves you into His kingdom, into His family, having planned good works for you to walk in, for you to listen, diligently walk in. Remember what uh, the author of Hebrews talks about? By faith it's impossible to please God, right? For he who believes must believe that God is, that God is who he's revealed himself to be, that's what that means, and that he is a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. We have to choose what we're going to do, how we're going to respond to these opportunities. And so Jesus continues with this parable, and it says in verse 19 that, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So in other words, the master comes back, and he says, okay, let's let's see how you've done with what I've I've given you. This is the, the, the day of reckoning. This is judgment day, you might say. I'm going to hold you accountable. Now, we talk about these things and it makes us a bit like, oh man, do we have to talk about this stuff? Can't we just talk about love and grace and peace? Judgment Day, it's so bad. But actually, it's very hopeful. The idea of the master coming back to say, let's settle accounts, let's see how you did, is a hopeful thing when you're actually walking with the master, doing the things he wants you to do. Listen to this. It says in, in Romans chapter 2, this is, this is how Paul deals with the judgment day. Listen, he says, God will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and live lives instead, live instead lives of wickedness. Do you you understand what's happening here? That Paul's saying he's in the same vein, in the same place. He's saying, yeah, man, God's coming back. He's going to judge. And it's bad news for those who live for themselves. But it's great news for those that are living for him, for those that know him and want to follow him and trust him. It's great news. Why? This is the second main thing I want us to think about. Not only does God give us opportunities as individuals, but listen also, God rewards us for faithfulness. The coming of Christ in judgment is good news for us. Why? Because God's going to reward us. Accountability is a hopeful reality. It's not bad news, it's good news. It's good news for us who are wanting to trust God and believe that God is gracious, going to reward us. But it's also good news for us who trust God and know that all the injustice in the world God's going to deal with. And we always we love to use Hitler as the, the epitome of evil, don't we? He's an easy target because he is evil. He was evil. But I want you to think about this for a second. Hitler had a plan to bring about some great race in his mind. And in that plan, of course, you know, he murdered millions and millions of people. So how did Hitler end? Did he die a slow, torturous death? Quick bullet to the head, it was over. If there is no judgment day, Hitler got away with it. Think about that for a second. How does that make you feel? Does that stir in your heart some indignation? It doesn't mine, Because I think, Lord, I know I deserve judgment. I know I deserve judgment. But I believe Christ died for me so I could be forgiven. But what does that mean for all those who aren't forgiven? What does that mean for all those who have done hideous things? Well, the hope that I have that one day when I face God, I'm going to be forgiven is the same, it's come through the same hope that one day when the Lord comes back, he's going to judge righteously. Because can we all agree we don't get judgment right down here? As hard as we try to have just legal systems, we still get it wrong. Now, I'm really thankful to live in this country where the legal system is often fairer than most in the world, but it still gets it wrong, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't get it wrong. This idea of accountability, this idea of judgment, it's a hopeful reality. Jesus wants us to see it as such. Listen, again, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6. He says, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we do not give up. Now, that's the New Living Translation. If you were to read the verse before, like in the, in the King James It talks about you will reap what you sow. Have you ever heard that in the positive? Because it's just as positive as it's negative. It's negative if what we're sowing is wickedness. It's positive if what we're sowing is goodness by faith. We're saying, God, we trust you. We want to do what's good. We want to see if we can benefit others around us. We want to make you known and to know you. Then reaping what you sow is a good thing. If you sow in your garden seeds of weeds, thistles, thorns, plants that make your allergies go nuts. What are you gonna reap? All those things, it's a bad thing. But if you sow sweet corn, potatoes, radishes, one of my personal favorite. If you sow these, what are you gonna reap? Something good, fruitful. Reaping what you sow, It's not just a bad principle. It's a good principle. Do you understand? It's important for us to see this. In fact, it's so important for us to, to, to be mindful of the fact that God's going to reward us for our works. That this is something that Jesus emphasizes himself. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Crown there is the idea of reward. This is what God wants us to be motivated by. Can you, can, you, can you see how this fits into Jesus talking about, you know, answering the question, here's what it's going to be like before I come back. Here's how you're ready for me to come back. That he's wanting us to be prepared to meet him. He's wanting us to be able to look forward. Paul talks about, uh, he, he encourages all those who love the appearing of Jesus Well, are you loving the appearing of Christ? Are you fearing the appearing of Christ? It's probably based on where your faith is and how that's shown in your works. If your faith is in you, if your faith is in your good works, okay, if I can just do enough, then I'll be happy to meet Jesus. If your faith is there, I'd be willing to bet you are up and down when it comes to the return of Christ, all over the place. But if our faith is in the Lord Jesus, what he's accomplished for us and what he's doing through us, and we can say, like they said at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's a good thing for you to come. Now, he goes on in verse 20 to say this, right? He says, so he had received five talents, says, look, Lord, I, I gained five talents more. And, of course, what does the Lord say to both the, 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 the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy? They've each... Doubled their money, so to speak. What does he say to each of them? Notice to each of them he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. He says the same thing to both men or both servants. Same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. He didn't say, Oh, really well done, five talent guy. Pretty good, two talent guy. No, well done, good and faithful servant. Didn't make any distinction about the opportunities they had. He only is saying, good job, because they were faithful. This is important to understand. Because often we wish we had the opportunities that other people had. I felt that way. I am ashamed to admit there's been many times I've gone to conferences or or, uh, festivals and I've heard someone speak and thinking, I'll get you better than that guy. Give me a chance, I'll feel I'll get you better than that guy. How come I don't have that opportunity? Because I'm old and bald and not cool enough. What's the deal? Feeling sorry for myself. It's ridiculous. God's not going to reward me or you or any of us based on the opportunity we get, but what we do with that opportunity. I have the opportunity most Sundays to come and teach a bunch of people who really want to hear from God His Word. That's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to please the Lord. This is great news. I want you to think about this. Maybe the only opportunity that you have is to do something that you feel is quite minimal. Well, I just feel like all I can really do is work. My job is so demanding. All I can do is work. That's still an opportunity to bring glory to God. It's still an opportunity to do good to others, isn't it? Unless your job is like a hitman, you probably can do something good for others. If you're selling dope, maybe not. But if you're Not a hit man, you're not selling dope. You probably can do something good for others by your job. Whatever it is. Do you see that as an opportunity? To please the Father? Now one of the things that I I think Jesus wants to do with his disciples in this is remind them about how easy it is to please our God. Yeah, that's what I said. Easy to please our God. See, if we're in Christ... If we've put our faith in Jesus, His finished work, His cross and resurrection, the Bible's really clear. It pleases God to save us. You know, there's no reluctance in the Godhead to save you. It's not as if the Father's going, kill him, kill him. He's going, no, Daddy, please don't kill him. Like Jesus has to convince the Father not to blow us away. The entire Godhead is pleased to save you. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts you so hard. (laughs) You think it's me. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit saying, poking that thing in your heart, are you listening to this guy? Yeah, he's annoying, but he's right. It's the Holy Spirit who wants to save you, who's pleased to bring you to Jesus. Jesus was willing to go to the cross for you. The Father was willing to sacrifice the Son for your behalf. God's pleased to save you, <coughs> and He's pleased to reward you. Now some of you struggle with this because you maybe had parents that were hard to please. I'm kind of like a bit, I don't know, personality, multiple personality disorder on this one. Mm-hmm. Because I, had a, I have a mom who was, not now, but was really hard to please. She was from a distance. She left it, like I said, when we were young. But when she'd come back to visit, it was always like, wow, your grades are so bad. Your house is so dirty. Your attitude's so wrong. Everything was negative, negative, negative. Then I had a dad who, you know, in a lot of ways needed to improve his life because he was drunk all the time, but was always like, hey, Johnny, you're a good kid. So proud of you. Well done. Go get me a beer from the fridge. <laughs> so sometimes I struggle with this, these kinds of things. But you know what? You know what brings me to the right level is remembering that I have a heavenly father who's a good, good father, who loves me perfectly. And with all sincerity, I'm gonna hear him say to me one day, well done good and faithful servant. He's going to say that. He's going to say that. Why? Because I'm so grand? No. Because he's making sure it's going to come to pass. He's doing a good work in me so that I can do good work so he can reward me. Do you you see what's going on here? Listen. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying we who, who are walking by faith We're walking in the things that God's called us to do in relationship with Him. Listen, we will be praised by God. Does that blow you away? We know we should praise God, but do you ever thought about God's going to be praising us for the good works that He enabled us to do? This is what the Scripture is teaching. This is what Jesus is teaching. Listen to this Old Testament, even Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you with his love, he will rejoice over you with singing. <laughs> I, I can't even fathom what it's gonna be like to see my heavenly father and him say, Well done. You did it. You trusted me. You see? Wasn't it worth it? (laughs) I can't imagine what it's going to be like when he puts that crown on my head and says, here's your reward. I can't imagine what it's going to be like, but I can picture this because it's in Revelation 4 and 5. I'm going to take that crown off and chuck it at his feet. No, it's you, Lord. You did it. All my reward is yours. But how amazing is it going to hear to to, to hear God sing over me? You know, I, I, it is speculative. I admit it's speculative. But in the book of Revelation, and I, and I just lost where it was, but in, in, it's in Revelation 2 or 3, when Jesus is speaking about the churches, there's a time where he says that, that one of the rewards he'll give us if, as we overcome is he'll give us a name that's known by no one else. And I wonder if we'll get that name in a song, if God will sing over that with a new name that nobody hears or understands but us. How amazing is that? Hey, man, call that pie in the sky if you want, but I've never had pie like that. <laughs> I can't wait for that. I can't wait for a time when my Father will praise me for just simply trying to walk with Him. But only that, he says to both these five-town guys two-town guys, listen, he also says, well done, you've been uh, faithful over little things. I will notice, he says, I will make you ruler over many things. Not only are we going to be praised by him, listen, we're going to reign with him. Now, we've talked a little bit about the difference between, say, amillennialism or postmillennialism and premillennialism. Just the idea that we personally have a conviction, uh, uh, the leadership of, of Servants Church, not everyone who goes here agrees with us. We still love each other. It's okay. But as leadership, we have a conviction that uh, we are what's called premillennialists. And what that means is we believe there's a literal thousand year reign where Christ will reign on this earth for a thousand years. And we will reign with him. L- listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. This is probably him either quoting a hymn or a creed that the early church either sang or or read out. Listen, this is a faithful saying, literally. This is a trustworthy revelation. And then he writes this. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also what? Reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. We shall reign with him. What an amazing thing. Please don't picture heaven and your reward if you just kind of pluck in a you know a harp on a cloud with little wings and you're like a fat little baby. And that's not it's not gonna be like that. We're gonna know as we're known. We're gonna have greater responsibilities that I have less burden than we do now. It's gonna be glorious. We're gonna have things to do, things that help us know God even more. Not only that, he says to both the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, listen, he says, enter into what? The joy of your Lord. So not only are we going to be praised by him, we will reign with him, but also, listen, we will celebrate with him. You know, you need to know something. God likes to party. Uh, Listen, this is what Jesus says. Luke chapter 15. I'm serious. Luke chapter 15. Jesus says, in the same way, there is joy, this is jumping for joy, in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. There's a little party that God throws every time somebody turns to God and says, Lord, I believe in Jesus, I need need Him to save me. There's a party in heaven. Can you imagine the party in heaven when we're all there finally together? Angels like the party. Jesus likes the party. Why are we so bummed out all the time? There's a celebration that's coming. We get to celebrate with him. Isn't it sad that we neglect or ignore or disbelieve that reality and instead are always trying to party down here? Hey, don't get me wrong. There's times for us to celebrate. One of the reasons we have a bring and share is to have some good food and to celebrate that we are one in Christ. We're supposed to do that. God commands. I, I think weddings should be beautiful and ornate, as much as we can afford. You know, obviously we don't want to waste a bunch of money we don't have. But, and it should be a time of celebration. Baptism should be celebration. Communion should be celebration. But all of it points to the, the celebration that we're going to have when we see him face to face. Now, did you see this? The five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, different opportunities but the same reward. Chuck Smith, the man who uh, God used to start the Calvary Temple movement that we're a part of, uh, at the height of the church's success, quote unquote, when they had about 35,000 people a week attending their services. They had people from all over the world coming to see what's the secret. And there was a time when a group came from an- another country to see what was going on at the, at the church there and Chuck was shown around the church and, and he said, what do you, what's the secret of your success? And he said, okay, come here. And he took him to this little room and there's this little room about, I don't know, about a, f- a fifth the size of this room. And in that room, people were praying 24 hours a day. Not the same people, obviously, but they would go like in three or four hour shifts They'd go and they'd pray, and then other people would go in there and pray. They had people praying 24 hours a day that God would do what He wants to do. And they were like, wow, that's amazing, that's great. We can see, yeah, God answers prayer. And someone asked them, are you excited about the rewards you'll have in heaven? He goes, no, 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 they're the ones who will get the reward. They're the ones. It's not the guys who do the stuff up front. It's the people who are behind the scenes, on their face, daily. Praying. When I went to Costa Mesa in January, I had never been there on a on a Sunday morning before. It's a huge. It's still a big church. It's not thirty five thousand anymore. It's more like I don't know about nine thousand, but it's still (laughs) that's still massive. And someone came up to me and he he said, "I know who you are." This is in a sanctuary that seats about two thousand people. Someone came up and says, "I know who you are. You're one of our missionaries." And we pray for you every week. And I thought, great is their reward in heaven. God's going to reward them for that faithfulness. Guys, listen. Jesus wants us to understand the way we're going to be prepared for his coming is to recognize that being a faithful steward Bel- means that we believe God is going to reward us, not according to our ability or opportunity, but to, according to our faithfulness. What are we doing with what God's given us? Now, I wish the parable ended there, but it doesn't. Because the same God who gives us an opportunity as individuals, the same God who rewards us for our faithfulness also that God condemns our inactivity. Look at verse 24. Then he said, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there is what is yours. There you have what is yours. Now, Bible scholars are kind of divided about what this means. Some, some think that in the parable what's happening is the master or, or, or that, the, um, um, that the servant is wrongly viewing the master, that he thinks he's harsh, he's accusing him of things he hasn't done, and because he thinks he's harsh, uh, he's not responding to him the right way. Others say, no, no, what's going on here is he's seeing him the right way, but he's having the wrong response to how the master's revealed himself to be. Either way, the application's the same. What you have going on here is a wrong response to the revealed character of the master. That's what you have, the wrong response. In other words, this man, who, who has an idea of what his master is like, he's afraid. He's afraid, so he says, because I'm afraid, I'm not going to do anything, basically. I'm just, I don't want to take a risk. I'm too afraid. I'm not going to do anything. You know what that shows? He really doesn't know his master. Or he doesn't believe that his master is as his master has revealed himself to be. If he believed his master was good and not like this, he should think, you know, I'm not going to believe those... Ideas, I'm good. my master's good, I'm going to do this good thing for him. If he believed his master was evil and was harsh, then he, out of fear he should have been, I better do something with this money or I'm going to be in big trouble. Either way, he didn't believe that his master was how his master revealed himself to be. Folks, do we realize that this is what God calls us to? God calls us to simply know who he is and respond to him. That's faithfulness. God, this is who you said you are and I want to respond to you. Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, one of my favorite verses. Peter writes, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. We have received all this, listen, by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Do you understand what Peter's saying? Peter's saying everything that we need to live this life, to be good stewards of this life is found in knowing Jesus, knowing what he's like, his mag- as he put it here in the New Living Translation, his marvelous glory and excellence. This is why our tagline is, it's all about Jesus. It's not because we think that's cool, because it's true. What do, what do we need to actually be Christians? Jesus. What do we need to know? Who do we need to know? Jesus. Who do we need to learn about? Jesus. Who do we need to talk about, Jesus? Who do we need to emulate, Jesus? (laughs) Who's going to give us all that we need, Jesus? Whose return are we waiting for, Jesus? All things that pertain to everything about life, everything to live a God of life is found in just knowing Him, knowing Him for who He is, having a relationship with God as He's revealed Himself to be. A friend of mine on Facebook this morning put something about, my God would never and then said something that was basically politically correct. I don't want to get into the issue, so I'm not going to name what it was. And I thought, man, that's so sad. It's sad because basically they want to have a relationship with God, but not the God who's revealed himself through Jesus. They want to have a relationship with God that they make up in their mind. A God that's always happy with them and always mad at their enemies. But not the God who showed himself in Jesus. No, everything we need for godliness is found in him. What was wicked about this servant? He didn't really believe what the master had showed himself about. Do you believe that God is as good as Jesus has revealed him to be? Do you believe that God is as powerful as Jesus has revealed him to be? Do you believe God is as merciful, as gracious, as approachable as God has revealed Himself to be through Christ, do you believe that? Because how you live shows whether you believe that or not. And so Jesus, or the Master should say, sorry, the Master says to the servant, verse verse 26, But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reaped uh, where I have not sown and gathered where I have not gathered seed. So ought you not have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest? Here's something common sense. You could have just put it in the bank and got 1%. I want you to understand what's going on here. This servant, by hiding the talent that God had given him, is proving that he doesn't really believe the master's coming back. You see, if he puts it in the bank, the bank knows it belongs to the master. If he hides it, nobody knows where it is but him. And when the master doesn't show up, guess who gets to keep it? He does. His hiding equals faithlessness. He really doesn't believe, not just in the character of the master, but in the word of the master that he's going to come back. He didn't believe it. Otherwise, he would have stuck it in the bank. He would have done something even minimally useful with it. Now, can you understand why we don't shy away from this kind of stuff? Can you understand maybe why we as the the pastors here at Servants Church, we grieve when we hear messages that talk about, (coughs) you know what, just believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do anymore. Just believe in Jesus. Everything's fine. And there's no call to a change of life. It's simply say a prayer and everything is sorted. Because we're basically saying, I'll tell you what, here's the gospel Bury it in the backyard. If Jesus comes back, pull it out and go, here it is, Lord. That'll fly. Not. And so it says in verse twenty eight, the master said, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Does that seem unfair? It does really, if you think about it. Why give it to t- give it to the two talent guy? He needs it more, doesn't he? Now, give it to the guy his ten talents, and this is why. Here's what Jesus says. For everyone who has, more will be given, and, f- and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One thing that all Bible scholars believe is that when Jesus is referring to that weeping and gnashing of teeth, it connects to all that else is in the book of Matthew, which is revealing a final judgment. The lake of fire. Hell, basically. Now, now, this is serious. This is sobering. Now, I think it's important for us to understand something here that when Jesus starts talking about using this example of take the talent uh, uh, from him uh, and give it to the one who has 10 talents, when he uses this explanation of he who has will be given more, he who does not have, well, even what he has will be taken away. I think the best way to understand the principle here is the having or have not has to do with grace. He who has grace gets more grace. He who doesn't have grace even what he had in his own works or merits or efforts is taken away. Then we need to understand something about grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's God giving us what we don't deserve, but it's more than that. Grace is also God's supernatural ability So you could say grace is unmerited supernatural enablement. So that we as sinners, as enemies of God, we who would push God away, God by His Spirit draws us to Jesus so that as we, and graciously does that, we don't deserve that. He draws us to Jesus undeservedly. And as we call upon Jesus and Jesus saves us, what happens? God gives us grace, and as, as the Gospel of John says, it's grace upon grace. God gives us this en- enablement to actually trust Him and walk with Him, follow Him, live in those good works He's created for us to do. They're grace. That's why Paul says. Paul talks about his ministry in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, look, I've ministered harder than all the other apostles. He's not bragging. He's just being factual. He says, but it wasn't me, but the grace of God in me. I am what I am by the grace of God, he said. It's God who, who gave me this ability. It's God who gives me this opportunity graciously. I'm just trying to be a good steward of it. This is why, listen... Jesus says in John 17, 10, I'm almost done. Jesus says, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Why would Jesus have, say this to his disciples who gave up everything to follow him, who uh, all sort of were persecuted severely. Uh, Church history tells us all but one was martyred for their faith. At the end of that, you're supposed to say, just unprofitable servants. That seems a bit harsh. No. He's saying, understand it's grace. It was grace that brought you to me. It was grace that kept you. It was grace that gave you the ability to endure that persecution. And it's by grace I'm going to reward you for all of it. It's grace. If God was going to reward me based on my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds, I would be in hell. Because deeds aren't just about the things that I do, but the thoughts that I have, the motives that I have. And to be honest, my motives, my thoughts are often wrong. I often try to do the right thing, and people would probably look at me and say, you do the right thing most of the time. But often I'm doing the right thing for the wrong reason. God's going to judge me for that as well. No, the amazing thing about grace is this. God in His grace forgives us for all the wrong we've done in action, in attitude, and motive. But also, God in His grace rewards us for all the good that we've done, all the right that we've done by faith in Him, in obedience. Grace. Here's the reality, and I'll finish with this. God is preparing us for a kingdom. And he's calling us to stop compartmentalizing our lives. This is my relationship with my spouse, with my employers, with my church family, with my God. And I just have to prioritize. Okay, God's got to go first and maybe this week church, next week family or I'll try to try to get the balance right somehow. And we compartmentalize our lives and think, I'm doing okay in that bit, not doing so good in that bit. Doing great in sexuality, doing bad in work ethic. Doing great in work ethic, doing bad in relationships. Doing great in relationships, doing bad in sexuality. We compartmentalize. But Jesus is saying, don't you realize? Everything you have, every bit of your life, every relationship, is an opportunity for you to know me. And good stewardship is about you saying, Lord, it's all about you. I want to know you. So give me grace. You've given me so much grace. Give me more grace. Grace upon grace. Where my sin abounds, may your grace abound much more. So that when I see you face to face, I will hear you say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? So I'm going to close in prayer. So, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to address first and foremost those of you who are really new to Christian things. You're still investigating this Jesus stuff. And I want you to understand that what God calls you to do, the response God is looking for, first and foremost, is one of trust. Do you believe that when he says you're guilty, that you're actually guilty, that you have sinned against him, you've sinned against other people, and you need a Savior from that? Do you trust him that that's the case? Do you trust that Jesus is that Savior, that when God confirms that Jesus is his son through his resurrection, do you believe, yep, I can trust that Jesus' death was enough to pay for my guilt? Do you believe he risen from the dead? That clear testimony of Scripture that all the New Testament is built on, the historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Do you trust that? Those are the good works you're you're first and foremost called to walk in. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. If you're new to this Christian stuff, you need to know this. God calls you to call on him. To put your trust in Jesus (laughs) and to ask him to save you. And you know what? Jesus promises, no one who comes to him will he cast away. You call on him, he will receive you. And he'll begin to change you from the inside out. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, do that right now. Pray to him, say, Lord, I believe you are who you've shown yourself to be in Jesus, and I believe you died for my sins. I believe that you are alive today. You've resurrected. I believe you're coming again, and I want to be right with you. Forgive me. Wash in my sins and make me right with you. Pray that. Call on God. Ask Him to do that for you. He will save you. For the rest of us, (coughs) today might be a good day in your conversations as we close to... Be honest with somebody about the stewardship of your life, to pray for each other. To say, Lord, I, I, I want more than anything to hear from you well done, good and faithful, servant. Grab someone today and ask, ask them to partner with you that you will bear their burdens, they will bear yours, and you'll go to God together with this.